Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The prophetic book of Amos consists of nine chapters. Amos is from the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, from a city called Tekoa, which is 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So he lives pretty close to the country center. He's going to prophesy to Israel, to the northern kingdom, and be a little bit hard on them. But very often the prophets will use the term Israel to refer to all of the people of God. Remember, they were never supposed to be a divided kingdom. That was rebellion and disobedience to God in the very first place. So he's going to um, prophesy over both to all the people of God. He's going to be in ministry during the reign of King Uzziah of Judah, who is in power from 783 to 743 BC, and then during the reign of King Jeroboam, son of Joash in Israel, who reigns from 786 to 746 BC there. Okay. He writes this book, the stories that he is giving us, the prophecies here, Um, are around 762 B.C., um, two years before an earthquake. Um, He is probably one of the earliest of the writing prophets. So he's writing his own words, which is a little bit unusual, but he's one of the earliest. His central message is that God is righteous and just, and he will uphold justice in all of creation, and we must imitate God by acting like God does, righteous and just. The story is going to be of how God redeems this poor, oppressed, alien people from Egyptian slavery, and this should have inspired grateful righteousness. Their major worship festivals are opportunities to share with those who are less less fortunate than they are, to be righteous, just, gracious, and merciful. But instead, the prosperous worshipers are indulging themselves to an embarrassing extent and excluding the needy, the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. And in their daily business, they are mistreating and even enslaving the poor among them and taking advantage of the weak. They, in fact, have become the Egyptian oppressors that God delivered them from. And God hears the groans of the oppressed. And just like he did the people of Israel when they were oppressed by the Egyptians, God's going to vindicate the oppressed. And so if we become the oppressors, we become on the receiving end of God's vengeance um, as the oppressed are set free. We always need to remember this at every point of human history, and at this point we see it happening and as a reminder for the people of God. So the summary becomes, worship without justice is unacceptable to God, and you need to change or face judgment. Rituals have no power unless they are expression of what is going on in the heart. (laughs) 
This is the constant call of the prophets to people to be faithful, not just in outward appearance, but all the way through to their heart. It is still the call of the prophets among us today. Most of our prophets hold the office of pastor in our churches, but they call us to not just come to church, but to be the church, that we have to live it in our everyday life. It's not enough to be a member. It's not enough to sit in a pew. It's not enough to sing hymns or raise your arms singing a contemporary song or fall at the altar or take communion regularly. How we live reflects whether or not any of that was meaningful to us. All right, let's jump into chapter one. You again see the word, the name LORD in all caps, and I remind you that this is the proper name of God, Yahweh. God roars like a lion. Um, Zion is the Jerusalem Temple Mount. Creation reacts, gives heed to their, and we should give heed to their example and mourn over our sin. The withering is um, often translated mourning, and it is in some other translations. I remind you that I use the New Revised Standard Version. The word Carmel, um, as a place, you can see that in Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Joel 1.10, Jeremiah 12, 10 and 11, becomes a significant place that is mentioned several times. Amos denounces seven of Israel's closest neighbors including the kingdom of Judah um, that he's from. The atrocities that are named here are recognized by all people as crimes against humanity. So they are accountable to a creator, our very conscience. They don't even need to know the one true living God to know that these things are atrocities and should not be happening. Judah and Israel, however, have even greater guilt because they do know God. They have a greater revelation of God, and so they are held to a greater standard. This is true for us as Christians. What we know to be sin is sin to us, and we are more, um, we have a greater obligation to be faithful when we know it's wrong than to those who don't know God, who aren't part of God's fellowship and may or may not know it. The prophecies come in poetic form. And so we get phrases like three transgressions and for four. Um, this is a, um, a rhetorical, uh, a, a literary device of poets who give us this to, it emphasizes the things that they are giving. God says, I will not revoke the punishment in some translations. And in other translations, it says, I will cause to return. So, I will do whatever I have to do to get them to change their hearts. So it is a use of what is happening, of the events of life, to try to get people's attention and get them to repent. We have a prophecy against Damascus, which is the capital of Aram. Hazael kills Ben-Hadad in 2 Kings um, chapters 8-13. through 13. They become a strong and ruthless empire of Syria or Aram under Ben-Hadad's leadership. We have a prophecy against Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. These are some of the major Philistine cities. Um, The only city not mentioned of their five major cities is Gath. We have a prophecy against Tyre. Tyre was a major Phoenician seaport from around 2000 B.C., all the way through the Roman period, which is when Jesus lived. It is 12 miles north of Israel's border on the Mediterranean coast. 
It's currently in southern Lebanon. It's often mentioned with the city of Sidon, so in Tyre and Sidon. They were the last cities. They were the end of the line of a trade route that ran north. Um, they are, Sidon is about 25 miles north of Tyre. Um, there's a modern Trans-Arabian pipeline that runs that way now and ends in Sidon. There's a prophecy against Edom. Um, there's never-ending anger that they have. There's no amount of blood that satiates their anger and their lust for vengeance. Edom is located south of Judah and south of the country of Moab. Edom means red, and these are the descendants of Esau, um, who was born red all over, the, the twin brother of Jacob, one of the patriarchs, but not the patriarch through which the chosen people of God is traced, but a relative of theirs. There's a prophecy against the Ammonites. The Ammonites are east of the Jordan between Aram, whose capital is Damascus in the north, and Moab on the south. Um, Their chief city is Rabbah that we see mentioned. This is modern-day Amman in Jordan, the capital of Jordan now. Milcom and Molech were their gods. They're most popular gods. Moving into chapter 2, we have a prophecy against Moab. They are south of Ammon and north of Edom. Um, Their crime is sacrilege. The king of Edom formed a coalition with Jehoram and Jehoshaphat against the country of Moab. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 3. In Jewish tradition, Moab dug up and dishonored the bones Um, as revenge for them having helped the Israelites. And then finally, the seventh prophecy is against Judah for having rejected God's very law. The prophecy against um, Israel comes now. They're not immune to all that is happening around them. There is a pattern here, um, fire, which will destroy the stronghold. So there's a, a definite pattern to the prophet's words given to us. There is an extended prophecy against Israel in verses 6 through 16. Um, They sell righteousness for silver in much the same way that Judas sold Jesus, sold the righteous son of God. But there are also false allegations that people are willing to bring if they're paid to do so. They do it for profit. They engage in bribery which is disallowed in Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. They sell the needy for sandals. In other words, they take people into indentured servitude. They sell them into slavery for small debts, for minor things. They trample the poor and they push them aside. They have contempt for those who are poor and less fortunate. They don't want to see them. They don't want to pay attention to them. And they show them no kindness. And then Father and son go in to the same girl. This is forbidden in Exodus 23, verses 9 through 11. In other words, father and son are both sexually abusing the same female slave rather than one of them marrying her. We see more about this in Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11. This defiles God's name and the actions defile God's land. This is not something that should be happening. We actually see this as God loving his daughters as well as his sons, that the oppression of women at the hands of men 
in this patriarchal time was never God's will. It, it is um, disgraceful. It's an abomination to God. We have garments that are taken in pledge. When a garment was taken in pledge for a loan, it was supposed to be returned to the person each night so that they could um, not be cold at night. And garments were never to be taken in pledge from widows. We don't take from what little they have, because remember, they had no way of supporting themselves. They're at the mercy of the kindness of people because there's not a lot of jobs available to women. But instead, they're keeping these garments that are given in pledge when they don't really need them. They're using them as picnic blankets. You can see a little bit more about this back in Deuteronomy chapter 24 of how it was supposed to be happening. And they are offering wine offerings. They're pouring out wine and taking wine to the temple, to the priest there, that they are purchasing from money they've gathered as unfair fines and from interest on loans, from charging high interest rates, so milking other people. This would be predatory lending practices. We have a lot of that today in the form of title loans and um, cash lending places. You can see more on that in Exodus 22. Our offerings to God are supposed to be offered from our bounty and offered in gratitude. And when we do things, when we go above and beyond and we give sacrificially, it shouldn't be because we're oppressing others to do it. It should be giving sacrificial to us, not at the sacrifice of others. In verses 9 through 12, um, we hear God being a little bit indignant. After all I have done for them, they're going to act like this. So God's appalled. In verse 11, the prophets um, are mentioned, the Nazarites. The Nazarite vow was a short-term vow to not cut their hair, to not um, drink wine, or even to eat of the fruit of the vine. You can find more of this in Numbers 6, 1 through 6. Um, Nazarites were consecrated and separated for that purpose. Um, they are sometimes chosen to speak for and to serve the Lord. It is an honor to be chosen priests inherit their duties in the temple because of their family line, because of the tribe that they belong to. Prophets and Nazarites are called to their um, vocation. Prophet tends to refer to those who are called to give their whole life, all of their life, to being a prophet. Nazarites were called to engage in a prophetic office to hear a voice of God for God's people for a shorter amount of time. In verse 12, we find that people are hindering the ministry of the prophets. They're working to lead people astray. Um, drinking wine violates the Nazarite, Nazarite vow, and they do so to avoid hearing God's will. Like they want all the benefits and prestige of engaging in the prophetic office, but none of the dedication and devotion that comes to do that and do that faithfully. This would compare to pastors that we see who don't spend time with God, who don't take the Word of God seriously, who are preaching sermons that their people want to hear rather than what God is telling us. Um, we give in to the pressure to be busy instead of taking time to be with God, and we succumb to the pressure to say what people want to hear, to lead in ways people want rather than necessarily the way that God wants us to. And we see that that's it's not right. It's wrong, and we shouldn't be doing that. 
Verses 13 through 16, Israel's punishment is going to be foreign oppression. There's going to be both physical and emotional defeat that comes. In chapter 3, Israel's guilt is going to be outlined in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verses 13. The people of God have a special relationship with God, and that changes things. They are known by God. God knows them and sees them, and they should know God. They have every opportunity to know God. This should not be a surprise that justice and righteousness are part of God's nature. In verse 6, we see disaster. It literally means evil here. John Wesley called this merciful evil, that it is sent by God to prevent us doing greater evil there. Basically, it's a spanking before you really hurt yourself. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline you before you really get hurt. In much in the same way that we would snatch a child out of, the ro- out of the road and might swat them on the behind before they get really hurt by being hit by a car. Verses 9 through 12 calls the nations to witness what is happening here. In verse 10, they should know better. It seems like um, God is saying, it seems like they've never met me before, like they don't even know me. And we have this long history with one another. Verse 12, we are told that only a remnant will survive um, like pieces. We only find pieces of a body after an animal attack. It's, it's a really pretty gross picture. Prophets are going to give us some really harsh, shocking, and gross pictures we were meant to be shocked, like we have lulled ourselves into a stupor, and we sometimes have to be shaken to get us out of it. Verses 13 through 15, we see a twofold punishment. There will be judgment against the transgressions that have happened in worship, and there will be judgment against the conspicuously consumptive lifestyle of the people. This is exemplified by people having multiple mansions with ivory paneling while there are people who don't have enough to eat. This pinches me so much because we in American culture have so much affluence, and yet those who are still hurting and suffer. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we see women being called cows. They're told that they are complicit with what is happening because they are benefiting from um, the oppression that their husbands are engaging in. They're not discouraging it in any way. In fact, they're encouraging their husbands and their fathers to um, do whatever you have to do to get us more wealth so we can be more comfortable. In verses 4 and 5, they love the appearance of worship rituals, but they don't love what God loves, which is people. God loves people, and God loves people by being righteous and just. Worship actually becomes sin when it is false. Ooh, that's, that's pretty convicting. Verses 6 through 13, God tries to connect with them. There's a series of disasters that this prophet tells us God is using to try to get their attention. When it talks about cleanness of teeth, it's referring to lack of food, um, a famine. If there's no food, there's no food to get stuck in their teeth. There's a lack of rain, sparse rain and drought, you would have thought this would have caused them to cry out to God for rain, help us, and they don't. There's blight and mildew. This will be crop diseases. There are locusts. The locusts come, devour, and destroy what does manage to grow. 
These, if you're paying attention, are very similar to the warnings that were sent on Egypt to the um, to all of the different plagues that befell Egypt before they let God's people go. And then we have a description of war. There's a lot of dead, and there's the smell of the corpses, of the bodies that are decaying. Verse 11 mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by natural disaster. It might have been a meteor shower, might have been a hailstorm, um, but we know that there was sulfur. Sulfur fell from the sky. It caused fire. There was flaming smoke. Um, it might have been an earthquake or a volcanic eruption that brought this down upon them. We, we don't know exactly. We can have a lot of speculation, but um, he's saying there's going to be the same kinds of things happening. John Wesley described himself because his family described him. His parents called him a brand snatched from the fire. He was saved from a fire in the family parsonage. His dad was a priest in the Church of England. And so they called him a brand snatched from the fire. And I see a little bit of an allusion here to the Israel was to be a brand snatched from the fire. God's patient snail appears to have come to an end. God's tried to be really patient in drawing us back. But there is a point at which God will not be made a fool of. We cannot just be disobedient and shake our fists in, in the face of God and say, you have to bless us, but we have no obligation to obey. Um, instead of encountering a gracious heavenly father, now they're about to meet the awesome creator of the earth. In chapter 5, we enter another section of this book that runs from chapter chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 14. Israel's death now is inevitable because of their disobedience. And this is a lament. Um, it's like a, a funeral um, dirge. Israel has is the fallen maiden, and it's a call to funeral lamentations for her. In verse 3, we see there is a diminishment of the population, and as the population decreases, there are fewer warriors with which to defend her and protect her. Verse 4 and verse 6, however, give us some hope. They could yet turn. They could yet turn and seek God um, as well, instead of going to Bethel, to the other sanctuaries, to Gilgal and to Beersheba, which were all centers of pagan worship, they could turn to the one true living God and they might yet find some mercy. In verse 7, the word ah is actually the same word that we have translated woe. Woe be to them. It's a, it's a cry of anguish. In verses 8 and 9, you can compare that to chapter 4, verse 13, and to chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. It's a hymn, um, a poetic portrayal of God's um, judgmentive power um, through creation. Notice that constellations here are already known and named. I have much to say about the prophet Amos, so I'm going to make this two parts and stop here. Pick up with Amos part two as we will continue in chapter six through chapter nine.